Hey everyone, this is Craig Hill, and a few words before we get started with this episode of The Teaching Pastor. Uh, this is not a typical episode where I'm interviewing a pastor and talking about teaching prep and method, um, but this episode was born after recording a session with one of our pastors um, in an episode, and we started talking about just what kind of microphones we preferred to use, whether it's a handheld or a lapel mic or a headset mic, a countryman or something like that. And um, and we just got to telling some stories, and after a fair amount of griping <laughs> and some laughs, this pastor said, you have to do an episode on this. So so this is where this episode, Pastor versus Sound Guy, was born. And I found an ideal person to have this conversation with. Paul Bresenden is the president of 454 Creative, which is a marketing firm in Irvine, California. Uh, but Paul and, and 454 Creative is not a sound firm, um, but Paul is a professional grade sound tech. And um, the beauty is he also has great ministry experience as well as um, musical experience. But the idea of um, merging all of this experience, and as you'll see, um, Paul is less of an interview and more of a Sherpa guide, um, ascending the hill and bridging into these various worlds from tech to art to relationships, to even philosophy of ministry and a philosophy of what is happening on a Sunday morning. So so in this special episode of The Teaching Pastor, we explore the relationship between the message, the service, and the sound team. And we talk about gear. <laughs> There's some pretty good geeking out about gear. Some stereotypes, <laughs> which is, are great, and a philosophy about um, what a sound person does and what are some systems about how to create a training culture at your church for these valuable volunteers. So... I hope you enjoy this special episode of The Teaching Pastor, Pastor versus Sound Guy. What do Whitney Houston and your AV team have in common? What's the best microphone to use on a Sunday morning? What about soundboards and speakers? Why is there a stereotype about sound techs among pastors? And why is there a stereotype of pastors among sound techs? In this special episode of The Teaching Pastor, we explore the matters of sound as it relates to the Sunday morning experience of the message. And we have a practical and philosophical conversation with Paul Bresenden, president of 454 Creative. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Teaching Pastor. This is a special episode. This is an episode that has been kind of in the works for a while, and it's an episode that has been affectionately referred to as Pastor versus Sound Guy. Oh, no. And so I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Paul Bresenden, and he is the president at 454 Creative, which I'd love to hear a little bit more about, but, um, but also just sound tech guy extraordinaire. Um, Paul, where... Is that correct? Am I am I correct in that assumption? Um, well, my company isn't a sound company, the right. very least. We're a marketing agency. Uh, we have done a lot of event live event production. I grew up uh, running sound, audio, video stuff in churches. Uh, I was most of what I learned. I learned from really great mentors in the church that I grew up in. Yeah, you mentioned a few of those those people. Like it seems like those were some pretty high level 
yeah, sound folks. You know, it's interesting because I think most professionals in the field, like people grew up learning how to be great musicians in church. I grew up and started to play trumpet in the church orchestra at fourth grade. Um, the, the trumpet section, the guy that, or the, he was a kid at that point, he was in high school, but he's gone on to be a very famous or very well-respected professional producer mm. and like wrote all the music for Brian Setzer, he's on The Voice. Like, awesome. Um, you, you think about the church environment, and it used to be where people learned these skills because they got a chance to do them in a way that didn't require, you, you, were, you got a chance to actually nurture and learn and have people that were at a much higher caliber than you. So you think about like all of our famous singers, Whitney Houston, right. Beyonce, all these people grew up singing, singing. in church. Um, so the same thing happened in the production environment too. You had people have access to equipment they would normally not have access to. And you had really great mentors that would come alongside and train someone because you it was the requirement of the job. You had to do this in the main sanctuary and then the junior high room and the kids' church room and all this other stuff. And so there was an intentional mentoring process that took place. It was really cool. Yeah, and that's your story that you kind of amateur coming up but learning very professional skills from really good mentors right so we yeah i mean we were one of the first churches to implement digital uh a digital console in a live sound environment um i grew up you know being then dragged into doing professional audio for different events and then worked as a studio engineer and uh, went to do a commercial uh, music program at azusa pacific because my the guy that mentored me was starting that program there. I ended up switching to a business major instead of a uh, <laughs> instead of a music major at that point, but uh, continued to retain and do all that stuff. I worked as a live, you know, worked as a technical director and uh, as a creative director for a lot of big corporate events and have done stuff for, I mean, we just finished Train and Kelly Clarkson and did a lot of the Christian, like, music circuit for different clients. So we had, you know, everyone from Switchfoot and... Um, delirious and all those other, you know, bands come through that. So you you end up having or dealing in a high production environment or a high stakes production environment. Um, but I've always I was a youth pastor for a while. You, okay. You, you learn how to do a lot of things on a very shoestring budget when it comes to your own needs as well. Right. Right. So you have you've got the chops obviously for uh, for the sound side as well as the ministry side. Which means that you you've been through the wars a little bit, and this whole this whole tension between pastor, sound person, tech person, or worship leader, sound person, like you have been in the middle of probably quite a few of these little skirmishes. Oh, it's it's a constant, right? Like there is there is very much a stereotype of the sound guy slash or versus worship leader. I. It's more of a worship leader than I than I hear with senior pastor, but I'm assuming that those things are trickle down conversations <laughs> in many regards. Um, my normal take on some of that is that we just lack common vernacular to yeah. have good, intelligent conversations, uh -huh. and that's part of what this is. Um, and we joke a little bit about pastor versus sound guy. And even as I sent you the questions, you said I was getting a little defensive about oh, some totally. of this. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and they were really, really innocent questions. Like, you know, what's the best microphone to use in this application? My first reaction is you don't tell the, the worship leader what guitar to play. And I'm like, 
calming myself down as I'm hearing some of these questions like, no, it's a really, my wife had to stop me like, that's a valid question. Simmer down over there. So, so one of the, one, <laughs> I surveyed a number of the uh, pastors that I know, and I gave them a list of questions. And that's kind of what we're going to work off of is this, and we'll have a little back and forth, but let's just talk a little bit about the job of sound or tech person. One of the pastors said, I've known normal people that went into sound <laughs> and came out weird. Sure. Now, okay. Sure. <laughs> so what, talk a little bit about just the nature of the job and, or the task and how that does affect how you, how you act and what you're trying to accomplish. Sure. Um, so there's a couple things to address here. A, I think sound people or media or whatever you're going to call it in your church, AV, um, it does attract a certain type of personality. Um, <laughs> Which we'll get to. We'll get to the stereotypes. Okay. But yeah. So I, but I think in, in, in general, the job itself is a difficult job. Um, more often than not, this is true of our church now where I'm a volunteer. We're the first ones in the door. Mm-hmm. We're normally the last ones out the door. Uh, in our church, it's an a unpaid position. And so there's a lot emotionally invested in trying to do something meaningful. Mm-hmm. And so that you have people that maybe don't have... Um, personality skills that put them in front uh and when they are called to and like when they are brought to the front of the stage where the tension is brought it's never in a positive light like um if something's not working right. they're the name that's called out right and in an environment where there's just lack of investment or lack of training or some of those things it some of those sound guys are getting more stage time or more stage presence than other paid pastoral staff yeah. and so Largely, if a sound guy or AV guy is doing their job, they're invisible to the process. Right. I was saying that it's kind of like a referee or an umpire at a baseball game or a football game. Like, everything's going well if you don't know they're there. Yep. And if they're doing their job, the worship leader gets the credit, Hmm. right? Somebody else. Very rarely... So and I, and I would say that that breeds an environment in systems thinking. We would say your system is perfectly designed to achieve the results it's getting. So if you have normal people going into this role and coming out abnormal, I would say there's a systematic problem here on either how you're treating them, how you're training them, right. what's going into that, pro- what the expectations are. Or the are stresses of the role. and strains are are more than what need to be there. Um, it was interesting to me because I I was thinking through this question and I had. This is at a different environment, so I don't want to. I'll, I'll let names be anonymous. That's and that every what happens here stays <laughs> here, Paul. Nobody's listening. No, I'm so just kidding. I, I was running a volunteer team, and I'm training a new volunteer who had just signed up. He's brand new, and he's sitting there at the soundboard. And I'm just walking through kind of what needs to happen. And you're in this role. And there's a ton of things that need to happen. There's lights that need to get turned down at various parts in the service, and all this stuff. And in the middle of the service, the senior pastor runs back in a huff, like, why isn't this happening? And goes through and fixes it himself. And I am sitting there just in shock thinking, this volunteer has never actually had a conversation with that senior pastor mm-hmm. ever in his life. And this is the first interaction that they're going with in this st- it, wow. for a thing that doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I get that you have spent countless hours trying to prep for this service, but the lights in the back of the room as people are walking in is not the interaction that you want to leave this person with mm. in terms of who you are. Mm. There is this stress level that happens in the production environment that ends up creating, or not creating, eroding relational equity. Huh. And so we end up treating each other in high-stress environments in ways that we would never normally react otherwise. And I think that sets part of the tone of how we interact 
in the rest of life and how we're interacting in the Man, sound that, environment. That is a good word, and that's exactly why we're doing this episode, because what I want is I want a good, I want pastors and to treat their sound people well. And that's one of the things that I saw with the, with the people that I put these questions out to is um, one guy said, look, first and foremost, I asked about kind of the stereotypes of, and, but also um, what do you appreciate? And um, to a person, each of these pastors said, the sound people are volunteers. They're there before I get there. They're there after I'm gone and they put in a lot of time and they're very invested. And so I do think across the board, there is an appreciation for that. But I do think what you're saying is a service, a Sunday service, especially where there's been so much invested time, musicians, pastors, even trying to create a mood in the sanctuary, that there is just an, an inherent stress. And pastors and sound people, there or tech people, AV, their relationships are these relationships born in stress, had in stress, and usually there's not time, you don't hang out afterwards necessarily. No. And so rarely. it produces, it does produce attention. Right. So yeah, I, th so that would be what I would come back to. If you're, if you're saying that normal people go into this role and come out weird, I would say that there's something <laughs> weird about the process that needs to get fixed. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So we've got a number of questions and, um, and I'm just going to work through um, some of these things. So one of the questions I asked was what type of so we're talking about teaching. We're talking about preaching. What type of microphone do pastors prefer? And I had a, a spate of answers. Some people prefer just holding it in their hand. Um, I actually prefer just the lav mic because I can, I feel like that's the one I forget about the most. Like I even forget that I'm mic'd up if I have the lapel mic or the lavalier mic. Is that, am I saying that right? Yeah, the lavalier, the lav yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but there's also been this, the countryman mic or uh, the Britney Spears <laughs> mic sure. or the Madonna mic or whatever. Um, what, what do you think about that spate of options? Um, and just from a sound perspective, what would you like? You don't tell the worship guy what guitar to play as a sound, as a sound guy. What do you, um, what do you think is the best for sound for that environment? Um, so it really depends on the environment and it really depends on the speaker. What I'm normally looking for is something that's going to deliver consistent results. And so in a church environment, it's really great because you can work with a pastor and find out what their preference is. Mm -hmm. Most of those are related to the style or preference of what the pastor is looking for. So in an environment where somebody is wearing a button-up shirt or especially if they're wearing a tie, a lav mic usually works best. Right. In a corporate environment, you know, you got that stuff fixed and it works well. If you're going to wear a hipster V-neck T-shirt, it's going to be really hard to get a, a microphone placed in there where it's going to stay consistent. It's going to be flopping around and that's mm -hmm. going to be really distracting. What we're looking for in general is something that's going to match their personality style. Do they walk? Do mm -hmm. they want to run into the, like, go into the crowd periodically? Um, do they stay relatively still or wear clothes where I can, like, actually have a mic placement that stands there? Um, if they have a beard, it's going to be really hard to do one of those headset mics because you're right. just going to hear like rubbing noise the whole time as that rubs up, up their beard. It's just not right. The whole goal is to, especially in the speaking environment is what we would call sound reinforcement to make what's already happening there to be loud enough for everyone to hear and to feel natural. So whatever tool it takes to do that mm -hmm. is best. So mm -hmm. if they're going to go into the audience, I would probably put them on a handheld because that has less opportunity for feedback. It's okay. all of those kind of considerations that right. go into somebody's speaking style that you have to figure out. Right. So most of the most 
pastors that I know are pretty much confined to the stage. I mean, I guess the other the other week I walked out into the crowd to to do to make some point, but um, but most of the time on the stage. And it seems like the countryman has kind of become the standard. For um, sure, yeah. And it's it's the new toy, you know. Um, I don't know if it's a toy or whatever, but. Um, they came from the theater environment. Normally those headset mics, yeah. no one liked because they had this big ball on the end of them. Crown was actually making those early and they were called the Madonna mic and then mm-hmm. the Britney Spears mic. And they're, they actually sound, they have a lot of good sound isolation because you're putting the sound source right in right front of that there. microphone. Uh, so in a, in those environments, that concert environment was so loud that they had to get that kind of isolation. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to dance so you couldn't hold a microphone. So it's interesting how that has now transitioned. That microphone has gotten right. incredibly small. So that's where Countryman has really picked up. But even the newer Countrymans, there's two different styles. One that they, the longer one, which you normally see in the church environment. Uh, but there's even a shorter one. They're omnidirectional microphones, which means they pick up all, yeah. a complete circle all right. around them. So they're, the shorter ones actually have less opportunity for that wind noise as you're having the like the P plosive noise that right. happen when people speak. Popping. So that helps fix mm-hmm. some of that. Um, and then there's the two ear design that people like right. allows it to have a little bit better placement. If you're it stays microphone a little bit more moving. fixed. Yeah. DPA which makes a really great new version of that. That kind of is, it's a little bit higher end than the yeah. countryman version, but cost isn't really the issue. Like a lot of this, the human voice is like any other instrument, different people's voices have different timbre associated with them and they're going to be resonant in different ways. So the E6 microphone, the countryman mic that we use in our church uh. sounds really great on most of our guest speakers, but on our senior pastor, he, his voice doesn't have that same resonant lower end. And uh. it feels to me like it's missing some of that. Hmm. And so I, I, you know, microphones aren't something that you get the chance to experiment with regularly because they're expensive. Right. Um, people get locked into a process. So occasionally it's helpful just to go out and rent a mic or do something different to try huh. something out. That's interesting. You know, is Countryman, is that a, is that a trade name? Or it's a brand, yeah. It's a brand, yep. okay. And what would, you, what would you just call that? Headset microphone. Headset microphone. So it's a Countryman E6 it's headset kind of like microphone. It's kind of like Kleenex. Yep. Tissue is tissue, but everybody calls it, give me a Kleenex. Well, I mean, sure has dominated the microphone market. Right, which is what we're using now, right, sure, Paul? Some Sure you... 58s, yeah. <laughs> These are standards. They're... These these are built like hammers, and it's right. hilarious to me how much. I mean, these are workhorse microphones that work great and sound great, significant, you know, for really long periods of time. Um, but it's funny because people try to cheap out in the process, so they'll go on eBay and look at country. Countrymen's are one of the most counterfeited microphones that exist. Really? So they're they're these knockoffs that you can go and buy, and if you're going to go buy a used microphone, you're going to spend sixty, seventy dollars when a new one's ninety, and you don't even know if you're getting the real thing. I guarantee you, if you take a real, a fake one and a real one, and you just you can feel the difference when uh. you're comparing them, you can hear the difference. So, you know, just buying the most expensive microphone normally doesn't solve your problem. It's an instrument. You have to figure out the right, uh. you know, the right tool for that particular instrument. And occasionally, it's worth experimenting. Like in our church, we have a lot of 58s that we use, but we use some uh, AKG D5s on two of the lead guys. It just has a little bit deep, like it really accentuates the lower end of their voice a little bit more and brings some more presence into what they're saying. And so, was, is that, was that, um, was that Scott and Joel who, who decided that? Because No, oh, I decided that. Okay. Yeah. I love it, Paul. I love, well, I love that there's a, there's a craft to this and yeah. figuring out what's the best way to record the instrument, which is the voice or to amplify the voice. You have to find the right, the best equipment to do that. It's a craft. Right. 
And so that, that would be my hesitation in saying what's the best mic to use, is that you have to really understand what you're trying to achieve. In our church, the, the speaker placement of it makes it really difficult to get good isolations directly above the stage. There's not enough isolation between the main speakers and a, yeah. a, a band that they're trying to cram onto a very small stage. Yeah. So in other environments, you can get away with a lot more stuff. You can have either different microphone placement that sounds a little bit more natural. Sound is about making compromises. And if your conversation with, if you don't have good relational conversation with the band or the pastor and them understanding, and maybe not in technical terms, but understanding what that compromise is, um, the Sunday morning that, that you went out on the stage, I was actually back as a volunteer right. back there, um, mm. training one of the guys and my just, I see you walk up to the front <laughs> and my instant reaction is to have my hand on the fader and actually, but that only comes with experience knowing mm. that most people are just going to blow out and feedback. Right. So you did some great things, behavioral things that actually helped that. And it was a non-issue. You kept your back to the speakers. Mm -hmm. uh, most people don't. They like turn, want to look back to the screens or right. do something else, which opens everything up to feedback. So it just has to have a constant attention where the sound guy is there to serve the people on the stage and to become an extension. They're probably the most important musician that you have in the church. Mm. Uh, if they're paying attention, if you treat them or, or train them as, you know, electrical engineers or IT people, they're going to fail at their job mm. because they think their job is to push buttons. It's to make sure that the sound that's coming out of there is pleasing to the ear. Mm. It's seamless. One of my favorite Farside cartoons is um, a sound guy, and he's sitting there with his finger, and he's at the soundboard, and it's just this big red suck button. <laughs> and I think that's what most often happens. It's like the they have the opportunity to make something that's really just either great or standard, and they have a, a higher probability of making it stink than making it really great. Button. Did you put the, push the suck button on yeah. my on my set on my sermon? <laughs> totally, I think that's what happens. <laughs> it also helps when the pastors actually communicate. Like I, I just walked out, just thinking this isn't this isn't a kind of important way to make my point. Yeah. I didn't even think about. I mean, obviously, I've done enough to know, don't face the speakers like face. But at the same time, I didn't run it by the sound guy before I. Before and you shouldn't have to. Part of that is they should know the room well enough and their equipment well enough. They, they should be musicians, right? They should know their craft well yeah. enough to see that, catch that. Yeah. Uh, and that's where some of this comes into play, that if you're not actually training and having good mm. relationship, then what, what ends up happening is they're there to push buttons and they're not actually paying attention. Right. So let's talk a little bit about training because um, I think it, at Grace, there's some really interesting things going on. And I just heard that um, uh, Trevor was telling me that the church has bought an identical soundboard that's used in the main service for the junior high room and the high school room with the with the intention of actually training the youth volunteers, people in the youth group, to run sound in their own environment so that when they eventually are in the main service, they know exactly what's going on. Um, was that your idea? Was that, I mean, where did that, where was that birthed? <laughs> Um, that, but the, is, is that a good idea? Uh, well, I came up with it. So yes, <laughs> I hope so. Um, I am. So I, I think training is where most church sound process falls apart. Um, uh, we bring people in that have technical aptitude, right? They, they love pushing buttons. Right. They're, they're geeky enough to and know, they know how all the stuff gadgets. put together. They know but all the gadgets. Yeah. It, this is part science, part art. And unfortunately, most churches, the sound never gets past the part science part. 
So yes, they plug everything in and yes, sound passes, but the frustration comes when you're not achieving what you're trying to achieve. Mm. And that's where I said the vernacular, the language betrays us. We don't know how to communicate well enough. It's um, the, the best, the funniest example is, is this is where sound people normally interact with someone else. You know, it sounds really hooty up here. It's kind of like a whoo, whoo, like, like I don't, there is real language associated with that. Like, hey, we have a, a frequency that's resonating up here at 900 hertz, but no one knows how to actually communicate that. Mm. Not the sound guy, not the worship leader. So nobody is doing the job correctly in an environment that yields a positive result if you're looking at it from that perspective. Yeah. The sound guy, if he's not trained well, doesn't know what that means. Mm -hmm. And so for them, it's a, like, put your hands up in the air and try to right. figure out what to do. So I am heavily invested in this process in our church because I learned it in you know, junior high and high school. Right. And so, um, for me, this was a worthwhile investment, partly because with adults, it's like pulling teeth. They're, you know, have limited time to invest. They're locked right. in a specific process. Um, and in fairness, I haven't been able to get a training process started in the adult side of our church huh. for a long time. Um, as much as I've tried, but on the junior high and high school side, they're so eager to learn. Wow. Um, I've, I do about, I don't know, last year we did about four to six training events. Uh, when I'm, when it's my turn to volunteer on Sunday services in between services, or when I have a break, I'll go into the high school room and help them mix. I'll teach them what I'm listening for and show them what I push. And the objective there, most of the time these systems fall apart because we don't set up a shared learning environment mm. in our church. It's we'll set up a sound guy and he'll be on that Sunday. And the next week it's a different sound guy and he's on that Sunday. But he has no idea how to, sh how to learn the best practices that are happening from the people that are uh, above him or more senior to him or have some learning there. Or some continuity across the board that every person who steps into the booth and runs the board knows essentially there's a, like you said, common vocabulary, uh, a common approach, right. common results. So you've got a little bit of a two-front war here then. You've got the technical side of knowing what buttons to push and why that chord goes to this, this level. But you also have the art side. Um, if a church is wanting to begin to train volunteers and have some continuity, how do you, how do you go about approaching that sort of training other than let's say an adult, you, you haven't done that one yet. So, so how, how would you start that kind of two front, the technical side, the art side? Well, uh, in our church, this struggles because we don't have a defined leader for that space. Okay. Uh, it falls under the worship team leadership, which the worship team leadership in our church is phenomenal. Uh, but they're not focused in the training side for the tech crew, whatever you want to call them beyond scheduling. So there is a once a year gathering that they do and it's building some relational equity, but we're not technically helping bring these people to any level of competence that goes along with this. Um, I would say there are a few things that should happen. A, somebody should drive the process. Okay. Uh, and that, that means building a team, understanding where things are falling apart. Uh, if you had an accurate inventory that a volunteer team was managing at the very least, you'd be further off than most churches are. Uh, understanding what equipment does what is a start. Mm. Um, the other thing that I would say from a leadership perspective is lead, pastors need to learn to communicate intent, not tactics. Huh. So, hey, I want to make sure, and most of the time what they're trying to do, the pastor, in, in my experience, 
they're trying to problem solve. They recognize that there's an issue. So their immediate, jo their immediate reaction is to jump in and try to solve human problems with technology, right? So uh, a good example of this, once again, no names being no mentioned, name. but the sound guys in the church that I was volunteering at just weren't replacing batteries. And so at least once or twice a month, the pastor would be speaking and the wireless mic would go out in the middle of the sermon. And I like, this is such an easy problem to solve. But the first reaction, the first thing that I'm brought into is, hey, we want to buy a whole new set of wirelesses that wireless microphones where the chargers are the actual resting place. So they put in, and they charge them from week to week and sure makes a unit that's like this. And it's really great. And it's interesting. But you're, what you're really doing here is you're trying to spend money and taking control out of that sound guy's hand and trying to solve, you're, you're basically turning them into the button pushers. Mm -hmm. So they're not, that doesn't fix the problem, mm -hmm. right? All you're doing there is kicking the can down the road to the next problem. Right. So it's the same, same dilemma as when worship leaders want the stage perfectly set and no one to touch it between Sunday service to Sunday service. Mm -hmm. When something breaks, the sound guy has no ability to fix it because he never set it up in the first place. Yeah. And so then everybody's frustrated and wants instant recall and upsetting saved and all this stuff. Teach your people to know how to use the equipment. Mm -hmm. So the, the simple fix to that problem is replace the batteries every Sunday morning. And create a culture of replacing the batteries and train and talk about so it. So communicate intent. The, mm -hmm. the intent there would be, I don't want microphones to go dead in the middle of service. How do we fix this? Mm-hmm. Or um, it sounds like we have feedback problems and it's distracting. How, what can we do about this? And, and it sets up a larger conversation because it's rarely an easy problem to solve. Mm -hmm. there, there might be too many microphones on the stage, which is counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. um, there might be too many monitors, too many instruments, too many. The, the pastor could be wandering out into the audience. There's, and so just the first knee-jerk reaction. It can't be the pastor or the worship leader. No fault. way. No, no way. way. Absolutely not. And it can't be the sound guy who has gotten up for a cup of coffee and not come back yet to catch it either, which has happened lots of times as well. That's good. All right. So let's just talk a little bit about this is fantastic, Paul. I'm just I'm loving this. I'm learning a ton, too. Um, when you think about a good sounding pastor, because most of the audience, we're talking about the teaching pastor, we're talking about um, going from passage to message, but also delivering a sermon. Uh, what are some things, as you think about it, your ear, what are some things that pastors um, could do better? Or what what is a good-sounding pastor sound like? Oh, interesting. So are you asking from the, like, the pastor has very limited control in this process, okay. to be honest. Um, on the pastor's end, what I would argue is dynamics is very important. The going to extreme ranges, yelling, whispering, that kind of stuff mm -hmm. is really hard a sound system isn't built to reproduce the full range of the human voice. Huh. Uh, it's built to compress that into a not like a nominal range where you can hear that evenly. So in radio, you don't have huge highs and lows. They compress that also. It's all relatively the same volume. Right. It's the tone that changes. Hmm. So the tools to use that on the sound person's end is uh, having a great compressor, making sure that everything is even. More, most of the time what people are complaining about isn't volume, it's harshness. Hmm. And so when something is harsh on the ears, uh, it, like, it doesn't matter what volume it's at. People are complaining about volume. Okay. But as a pastor, you don't want to be, you don't want to go, you don't want to yell. You don't want to whisper. Like you're going to need to vocalize at least a little something. Sure. The more, if you're going to make this easy for the sound guy, then there are people that love yelling, which is fine. Uh, I just, I would hope that the sound guy would know that in order to fix that. 
Because if you yell into a microphone and overload it, that digital distortion or, or even analog distortion, distortion is terrible on the human hearing. Yeah. It's terrible on your speakers. That's how you blow speakers. Okay. So most of the time it's that yelling where you, oh, you're overloading something that ends up causing damage. Okay. Uh, it's not sheer volume. So that distortion is when a speaker has to square wave. It doesn't, it can't do that. It can't reproduce that sound, that mm -hmm. distortion. And so it just blows. But in, ter in, and in terms of um, just a pastor's voice, like do you recommend that they smoke like a pack a day? Sure. To, to really get that low end? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's voice is different. Right, I wish right. mine had lower, uh, lower end resonance. And, you know, they, I'm not a radio personality. Most senior pastors are not. That's not a requirement of the job. Right. The requirement of the job is to lead people well and, you know, um, understand what your congregation needs and right. speak the truth of whatever the Holy Spirit's bringing into that environment. Right. So do that job really well. <laughs> um, on the mi microphone side, what I would say is your job is a, the best sounding pastor, in my opinion, is the one that sounds like the conversation you would have without a microphone there. Nice. So uh, from that perspective, you're looking to not color that pastor's voice. Right. So whatever he sounds like naturally, the job in that environment is just sound reinforcement. Just make it clear so that everybody can hear the same way that you have a conversation. Oh, that's good. That's good. All right. So um, let's talk. Let's talk about stereotypes on both sides because <laughs> sure. I, 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 the the stereotype about the the tech person, but I would imagine there's also stereotypes about pastors from the tech side. So let's just, let's let's start with the with the um, let's talk. So I pulled my pastors and ask them, is there a stereotype? And they all said that they appreciated the sound tech and they appreciated how hard they work and that they're volunteers. But they also said that there is a stereotype that oh, of course someone is. who is um, somewhat blunt, uh, introverted, maybe even socially awkward, heavy into tech or sci-fi, fantasy, gaming, maybe even a little death metal. Um, <laughs> but also very passionate and detail oriented. I mean, how do you respond to that? Like, have you seen that sort of stereotype or? Oh Lord, yes, <laughs> of course, yeah. You can pick out which one I am, here, which is <laughs> true. Uh, I think they come from one of two ends, like in the analog environment, if you rolled back 10 or 15 years, most of the sound guys came from an electrical engineering background. They were, you know, they were used to soldering and tinkering and putting together stuff. Uh, and so you had that side of it. They were button pushes. Now that, now that the environment has gone a little bit more digital and music technology, like you're recording this in a, you know, free software program right. off of a Mac, uh, the music technology has become far more available for the average so person accessible. to play with. So accessible. However, the gear that's actually used in a church environment is not. Hmm. And so you have people that think they understand some of the basics of it, and they understand some of the basics of it, but there are things that are never communicated or taught until you get to a completely different level. Hmm. So there's that side. Um, the, the stereotype, if you're going to describe it today, now that they're digitals, I would say that the typical sound guy is the Nick Burns character from Saturday Night Live's like IT guy. He's just the, have you seen that I, clip? It's yeah. so funny. It's uh, I'll put, we'll put a link to it in the, uh, in the, show, notes. In the show notes. Yeah. But it's, you know, he's sitting there and there, you know, kind of gives you the snooty, well, my computer password isn't working. He's like, move, and like pushes <laughs> over and goes in there and fixes it. Um, so there's that side. The other side, which I think speaking to your death metal kind of stuff is it's the, uh, 
I don't know if that would say failed musician, but the musician that has figured out that he's not as good enough to be on stage and instead his back behind the scenes. Okay. Uh, I'm the awkward mix of both. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the trumpet didn't work out. I played trumpet for about 15 years and was really, I was fairly decent and realized I would never be as good as my mentors were. And um, I don't know if that speaks to my competitive side or to what, but realized that I had a much more natural gifting to audio engineering. Yeah, well, than, there's no there's no doubt about that. So um, there is, there is e- either one of those. I don't know. There, I was thinking about this because I think... I'm a systems guy, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I run a company and do a lot of training and you know a personality type profiling. It'd be really interesting for some of you personality type profiling people to come back and tell me what makes an ideal sound guy because I don't know if they're introverted may or may not be true. I'm definitely not introverted. Right. Okay. Uh, I think there is Which something Which is what there makes you a great trainer of people. Probably so. Right. Uh, I look at our team. I would assume that many of them are relational, just not... Um, I think where most of this falls apart is you have to have this really awkward mix of musicality and technical ability that doesn't normally line up. Yeah. So they've got one side or the other, and they've got to really work on becoming a rounded person. And then, you know, we normally say, you know, play to your strengths, not necessarily just round out your weaknesses. And so you've got to find people that are musical because that's a much harder attribute to teach than how to push buttons. Yeah. Now on the other side, do in the sound community when you guys go outside at, at the at the break and have a cup of coffee or whatever um what is the stereotype of like the demanding pa- like what is the pastor like when you're th- when you oh man these are normally go to the worship leader not the pastor but i i would love to hear some of yours have you babylon b has some just hilarious i don't know they must have just senior pastors and sound guys just teed up because they are some it, of the best stories. One of my favorite It's great satire. Ones, it's great satire. The last one was like worship or uh, tech guy runs perfect service at Grace Fellowship Church and just cracked me up at how like, <laughs> a it's like the unicorn that will never happen, you know. Right. But that's that's just I don't know. Give right. me some of the sound. I from a relational perspective, the senior pastor normally comes in in a way that's just like the one negative interaction. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not that they're bad people. It's just that they have something really specific in mind, and so I don't have very many. Uh, I don't know. I would I would say that they're if you're going to give a generic stereotype, they're Moses who wants to come down with the Ten Commandments and say we're buying EAW speakers or else. <laughs> it's like, wait, what do you know about EAW speakers? Okay, yeah. So it's th- speaking into things they don't know about. They may. It's just like the weirdest hills to or battles to fight. Like pastors are. I I, I think pastors are, for better or for worse, they hear they they're comparing. Sure. And so this church has this, or this is their setup, or I went to this church, I guess spoke, and they had this, and you know what? So it's kind of like, well, what about what about us now that I've seen this? Which would go back to my point, like communicate intent, no, don't spec a solution. So what what's happening in that environment is the pastor knows that there's something wrong. He's he may even be able to articulate some of that, but he's going in and specking his own solution that neither he nor his sound guy usually has the ability to solve. Yeah. Right. Like if if they knew how to solve it, they would have already solved it. Right. <laughs> right. Right. I think sometimes this is from from my perspective. Sometimes I'm either sitting and listening to the service, or I'm on the stage, and I'm like, "Can they hear this back there?" Not in our church. Huh. So that's an interesting thing, right? So our in many environments, somebody else has set up the equipment and installed it, and it's been a electrical process. Mm-hmm. Speakers are wired. It's up there. It sounds good. Well. 
sounds good is a relative term. From right. where you're at in the room. In our, in our church, there is some speakers that are flown. It's a very low ceiling. And so the horizontal and vertical coverages are creating what's called nodes. So you have really great sound in this seat, and you move over six seats or two rows back, and it sounds completely different. In our church, the soundboard is logically placed in the back corner of the room, which is the only physical, logical place that I would right. see to put it in that, but is the, literally the worst place to mix. I sit there most often in services, and I get up and walk down the aisle just to like listen, knowing that that's the problem, and I'm just blown away that you can hear this slight ringing in this part of the room versus a different part uh. of the room. So in those environments, the, the job of the sound person is to actually know what the room sounds like. To know your room. So I was giving some feedback to our team in our, in our church. Uh, I wanted to mic the drum set. It's a small church. They didn't want to mic the drum set because the drums were already overpowering it, which was absolutely true from where the pastors sit in the first two rows in that first section. Right. But if you go to the back of the room because of the low ceiling, it looks like a bobblehead. The drummer's up there banging away on the drums, and you can't hear anything because they're playing with brushes. Huh. And so... You lose, and so I asked them just to sit in the back of the room the next Sunday, and they came back and said, "Yeah, you're absolutely right. Let's mic the huh. drum set." That's a great. That's a great process to to think through because you're right. They're, you're sitting in the front row. You're already. It's already blowing your hair back, but go somewhere else. Right. So to them, the and so that environment. Yeah. So the goal there is to create consistency, and consistency is a really hard thing. Huh. Um, most of the time, it's not a vendor problem. You're not going to solve this with buying a Sure mic versus a AKG mic or a DPA mic. Like, yes, the the problem isn't the vendor. The problem is the specific challenge you're facing in that church. So yes, you go to a different church and you see that they have this particular speaker brand and this setup, but they're, all of their other environments are drastically different. Um, the best sound system is the one that's going to deliver the style of experience that you want. And you want that to... Like in a, in a church that really values loud, immersive worship, you have to have a concert-esque level sound system that envelops people in sound yeah. without it being dangerously loud or harsh. That's the challenge. Yeah. Uh, in many of those environments, they make up with poor musicality or bad engineering with volume. That's a dangerous thing. You wow. can make most things sound good by just turning it up. People's hearing starts to deaden. All of the sins of mixing go away. But that's not a good environment for anybody anybody to be in long term. Mm. Um, and, and then in a more traditional environment, creating clarity, creating a... You don't want the sound to be colored in a way that's where you hear the sound system or you hear the microphone instead of hearing the message that should be being yeah. taught. Now, as you think about some people who are listening to this, they are a church on a budget. And... Um, and they're trying to do their best. Maybe they have some outdated equipment or things like that. If you are thinking about, I guess, I guess it is all case by case, but as you're thinking about what, what is a good starter system or what's a good upgrade system as you're thinking about maybe a small church? I mean, like Grace is not a, a big size church, but it, it, it's a, it, you know, it's 800 people or so, but it's a small room essentially. Um, what, what are, what are those kind of tiers of sound system boards? What is a good starter set? Yeah. So we're, I would say we're in a starter set at our church. Uh, the room is really hard because it has a low ceiling and it's a fan layout. So normally you would set up a stereo system. In our church, a mono system is best. And we're set up in a mono system, but the speakers are hung in a, like, in a what's called an LCR, left, center, right cluster. 
uh, it's just not a good setup. It's creating all, it, the speaker choice and installation isn't ideal in my perspective. Okay. Those are all sunk costs. Right. Right. I can't do much about that without a hefty budget to fix. And right. so you overcome some of those things with just being a really good musician, finding compromise. Um, well, I'll get to nitty gritty if you want. I think newer technology far outweighs older technology. Okay. So speakers that were the normal thing that a church would do is to go buy some used speakers. And I would say, don't do that. Uh, the used speakers from just even a decade ago sound vastly inferior to the oh. speakers that are coming out today. Okay. QSC makes a really great series. It's uh, a K series. And so they have K 12.2 or something. Now those speakers sound phenomenal. Okay. Uh, and they're, I, I don't know, six, seven, 800 bucks, something like that. Mm -hmm. So, you going out and buying some used speakers for 300 bucks versus buying some new ones for 700 bucks is going to be a night and day difference okay. in that environment. So go new go because the tech is probably better. Go new and don't like there's a middle of the road there. And there, and I, and I would say this before you buy anything, listen to it. So there are plenty of, um, we're, we're so used to buying things over the internet these days. Um, go listen to something. There's plenty of showrooms where you can turn them on. Unfortunately, most of those showrooms are like, um, DJ type of places, right? It's it's a DJ house that has a bunch of speakers set up. Uh -huh. Listen to them in your environment. Hmm. So there's plenty of places that you can rent that equipment before you buy it. Huh. So go rent those speakers and set them up in your church. Rent them and put them on sticks, speaker stands, exactly where you're going to place your speakers and see, does this sound better? Hmm. And you can spend a couple hundred bucks. If you're going to hire a systems integrator, they should have access to that equipment or have rental equipment that you can like try it out and listen to it before you buy it. So if you don't have someone who has kind of professional level experience, you would recommend a church hire a consultant? Hire, beg, borrow, steal, yes. Okay. You, you need someone that knows what they're doing in this perspective. Um, and in many regards, just having access to stuff is what you're gaining. Mm. Do you know of any, would you recommend any, and maybe what we'll do is off, we'll recommend, I'll, I'll put a website in the show notes if you have some recommendations yeah. um, and we can go from there. For what, like integrators? Yeah, integrators. Sure. Yeah, there's, okay. some, there's lots of really great integrators That's great. in our area. Yeah. Well, this is, look, this is fantastic. I think this is really helpful um, for a <laughs> lot of pastors in this. Let's, let's, let's switch gears a little bit because you don't just do sound. And we've had a conversation now. We could really, because we've had some good adversarial conversations. I remember one time at men's retreat, I, ha I said something sideways, uh, some snarky <laughs> comment about branding. And like you like slapped me upside the head, essentially saying, look, branding is telling a story. And this is, so let's talk a little bit about the idea of branding, especially messages, sermon series. I know some churches do a really good job of branding a series to a pastor who is a little skittish about putting up a front that's false or something like that. How would you, how would you help a pastor, uh, to, to welcome the idea of branding either their church or their sermon series? Oh man, such a loaded word. So I, this is, this is, um, you're like, like doing cartwheels on uh, on a nerve for me on the word branding, which I which I'm happy to share. But I'll I'll go back to what you're That's saying. That's what this just podcast is all about: just getting on your nerves. Paul. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Branding in general is such a misused term that people just start throwing it out without understanding what it is, which drives me nuts because I run a marketing agency. Right. Branding itself is not. I wouldn't define it the way that you're defining it. Okay. So I want to go. I, I want to address your question, but I would say that the discipline of branding is painfully misused in the the 
business you know sector and then it's even further morphed into like i don't know what we're talking about as it comes to the church or nonprofit environment mm. the idea of branding entered the marketing vernacular uh, space probably in the 80s and they're borrowing a term from cattle ranching where you take a searing hot piece of metal and blistering it on a cow's rear end so you knew which ones were vaccinated and which ones belonged to who and this idea of branding an organization especially essentially what you're talking about is creating messaging creating an experience that leaves somebody so that when they know that they're a product or a customer of a particular organization, that you can instantly just look across the field and see that person is an Apple guy or that person belongs to so-and-so. If you think about it from that broader perspective, that's absolutely a really appropriate activity for churches. Uh, Jesus talks about this often, that we are an aroma or we are salt, we are light, we're branded as Christ followers. So, Yes, I, I think the fear is creating this manipulation. Yeah. Um, however, I would argue that Jesus very clearly manipulated people to have an emotional reaction and a remind. This is like a common thing that God does. Mm. Hey, I want to create this experience so that you, when you come back to this, you always remember what I did or who you are. I want to set you guys as a people apart in this perspective. And that's what branding is. Mm. So they would wipe blood on their doorposts or wear really awkward, funny clothes or not cut their hair or tassels you know, on the garments tassels so all of this stuff is branding if you're going to throw it out that way sure i think what you're referring to is using graphics and sermons or and at the very least the argument i would make is that the job of a church these days is to be communicators that that somehow induce through the holy spirit transformation if we're only relying on spoken word or some other piece like that we are fully immersed creatures that have emotional connections to symbols and to visual cues and you know so what we're talking about is experiential design this is a whole different facet of marketing called experiential marketing that is so applicable to the church like understanding what kind of emotional connection is created off specific triggers, whether that's an environment or a sound or a feeling or something that goes along with that, I think pastors should use every tool that's available to them in a way that's not distracting. Huh. The tool isn't the message. The message is the message. And so when we spend more time crafting the PowerPoint for a sermon than listening to what the Holy Spirit wants to tell our congregation, yes, I would agree there's a problem. However, only using one particular tool in your toolkit because you're afraid of manipulation, I think you're missing the point mm. of what it means to create an experience that obviously the Holy Spirit yeah. can use to create transformation. What are some media or mediums that you think are underutilized by pastors, particularly when it comes to the message? I'm not talking, I don't want, not the worship experience, but particularly the message, because we're talking about the teaching pastor. Um, what are some media that is underutilized, you think? It depends on the church. So as a sales and marketing expert, I would argue for a pattern interrupt. So what if your church... Explain that a little bit. So if the person is used to, so in a sales cycle, uh, we're used to a particular set of unspoken rules that are predicated on a lie, right? Hey, I'm really interested in this. Tell me more. Mm -hmm. And then I'm too polite to tell you this isn't a good fit for me. So why don't you spin up a proposal for me and I'll do all this extra work and then I'm going to give it to you. And then you're going to go dormant and give me free access to your voicemail for the rest of your life. Like that's not an efficient process. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that we would do in here is to actually, well, set, set the rules for how we're going to engage. Hey, we're going to have a really great conversation together. We're going to figure out if we're going to be a good fit. And if we are a good fit, then we'll 
figure out what the, the next stages are. But what's going to happen at the end of this meeting is that I want a clear yes or no from you. If this is a right, good fit thing, then we'll take the next few stages. If it's not or the timing's not right, no is my second favorite answer. What I don't want to happen is for you to say yes, but really mean no, or to say maybe and spin up all this work for both of us when it's really not going to go anywhere. Let's just agree to say yes or no. Are you yeah. willing to have that at the end of this conversation? Right, right. So the pattern interrupt is to break what people are used to in their experience, to set them up for a real engagement that drives life change. In, in our case, a sales structure. Right, right. So in the church environment, if you're used to doing something every Sunday, a great pattern interrupt would be to do something drastically different. Mm. So if your sermon slides every week are black or your text are black, like it can create a different immersive experience if you're trying to get people to understand a certain value to change up that environment. If you're in a high worship environment where it's loud and, you know, rock driven, changing something up to have chairs clear out of the floor and an acoustic environment to create a different change right. is really like, and so the goal isn't to just have this rapid, you know, constantly changing environment, but there right. are symbols that we use regularly, whether it's communion. Um, so I grew up in a Pentecostal background church with um, more of a traditional environment associated with it. I played in the orchestra and, you know, right. did all of those things. So to me, the natural gravitation towards a emotional connection to a worship experience is important to me. Um, but I love some of the pattern interrupt stuff where someone brings in a liturgical or community uh -huh. aspect to either reading scripture together right. uh, or setting the tone for a service. Create some of those things. Um, I went to some uh, Orthodox funerals because my, uh, my in-laws grew up in a Catholic slash Orthodox background. Right. And it was just fascinating. It was deeply spiritual to me and fascinating, right. fascinating to hear, to like walk into this funeral and hear this loud clashing of whatever things that they're doing with incense going. Mm -hmm. And like, to me, it actually brought it back to a tabernacle type of experience. It was a mm -hmm. deeply emotional, like, um, spiritual experience. But I think largely because you weren't used to it. Correct. It was, I, I think those are some of the like meaningful things that mm -hmm. maybe, maybe it's not just every time it's new, but it's a, it's an emotional connection to something that, that brings you back someplace. Right. Right. I, th I think the idea of pattern interrupt is a great, I remember in, in uh, seminary, they were like, what, what's the, what's the worst teaching method to use? Well, the worst teaching method is the one you use all the time. <laughs> and so to, to do a pat, to, to utilize this idea of pattern interrupt and to use a new medium, sure. uh, to change the tone, to change the level, to, to find out whatever is a good pattern interrupt for your congregation and engage. So are there some things as you think about, I mean, whether it's um, uh, sound or graphics, is there anybody that you look at as in terms of even just graphically representing the sermon or um, whether you mentioned PowerPoint? I like Prezi. I've been using Prezi, which is online. Anyway, it's a little different. What do you think are some best practices in terms of if you are, um, if you were to talk to pastors about messages and graphics and even a pattern interrupt. So we, we deal with a lot of executives and build presentations and decks for them before they go on stage. Everyone from, you know, software companies, like, you know, so that this idea of creating or communicating really clear messaging and helping them through that process is something that we're really good at. Yeah. I, I think where most pastors fail is they're reading their slides, right? Mm. What they're trying to do is to like, 
the, the goal isn't to build out the prettiest brand. Like if you, if that's your goal, go outsource this to a designer who can do it fairly inexpensively. And there's, uh, you can go to Upwork, which is you can hire designers in Romania that'll kick out a really great PowerPoint presentation for you for like 15 bucks. It's not even worth you spending the time to do it in most cases mm -hmm. these days. The objective here is to communicate what you're trying to achieve. Um, so PowerPoint can be a, a really great tool for this or it can be a really huge distraction for this depending on your speaking style. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, if you're asking for specific tools, at the very least what I would say is every person is a different type of learner. Hmm. So what you're trying to do is to leverage different learning mechanisms to make sure that the message sticks. So you can use repetition for that. You can use auditory or visual cues for that. Uh, I'm a visual learner. I can literally remember where that sentence was on a page in a book. Yeah. And my brain goes back to that. Like I see it in the middle of the page in this top section and I can see that. So if you're using, if you're not doing that and you're forcing me to listen only, mm -hmm. then chances are you're going to lose me halfway through if I get bored. Mm. So re-engaging some of those, like making sure that there's some cues that re-engage the main points. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. My, the, the easy thing to do is if it's not your normal style, chances are you're going to do it really poorly for a while. Okay. Be okay with doing it poorly for a while. Hmm. as long. And the other thing that I would throw back, going back to our previous conversation on relational equity, I think the thing that churches do fairly poorly these days is the senior pastor is trying to be, I don't know, the captain of the ship and every other role because, you know, at the end of the day, he's the most emotionally invested in the hmm. outcome of the service. Um, one of the things that I learned as I was a volunteer at Rock Harbor, they had a, a new role that I had never heard of, and that was the celebration director. And the celebration director's role was to actually de to be that like chief of staff type of person that understood the intent of what the pastor was trying to create, and the pastor drove that conversation. So, and, and they had a really great format for this, and I, I'm, I'm not sure who to give credit for that. It was Todd Proctor or Mike Erie or mm. one of the celebration full-time celebration directors. But they had this, what they called a two-ramp theory. Like, what do we want people to know about God? Uh, and then we, what, are, what are we calling them to do as a response to that? Mm. And so that's, those simple two guiding questions informed how worship went, how the message went. And that celebration director actually fed back. Um, they did, like, I don't, I don't know how many services. We had 14 different services at that point. Mm. But the celebration director fed back iterations of what to do differently from one service to the next based upon, A, what they were feeling that the Holy Spirit was calling them to do in that service, yeah. and B, how terrible that joke was that distracted them from everything else. Mm. So they, they had some, like, a, a large measure of authority or, or to go in and say, hey, you can't say this in the sermon. It's distracting from what you're trying to achieve. Mm. Or don't do this in the service. This isn't really helpful. Um, don't say, hey, we, our worship team is really light this Sunday and you're just going to have to bear with it because we're going to stink, which is like more often than not, we're up there just talking and yeah. we treat it either like a, like a gig, right? It's right. this song was written by my really good friend. It's like, is that really what you're trying to achieve in the process? Like there's a specific outcome that we should be leading people to in an experience. How do we get them there? Mm -hmm. And if somebody isn't speaking into that and creating the right kind of environment that's external to the process, mm -hmm. very rarely do we get there. Huh. That's a, that's, I think that's a great, I think a lot of times we just think about silos, like I'm working on the sermon, they're working on the worship, 
here are the announcements. Right. And everybody works in their own silo. And then we pull songs that have the word for the theme that's in them. Right. But it's not actually yielding to them a specific outcome of what we're trying to achieve in right. our community. This right. is what the Holy Spirit's telling me as the senior pastor that's important for our community. And maybe I understand fully the outcome or where that's needed or not. But I would assume that the Holy Spirit would guide the entire team to that process. Yeah. And so here's what we want them to know about God, and here's what we want them to do about it. And then allow somebody in that process to actually walk through. And you can do, and so that celebration director would then be in charge of the creative for those services. So they would work on whether that's, hey, we're going to introduce some sort of like dramatic element, or we're going to play this video, or we're going to set up the service to be a drastically, like maybe we're just going to do worship on the back half only and change the entire structure. But there was some like objective team that was leading them to a process and somebody that wasn't performing that was in the back saying, hey, this is working or it's not working. Yeah. Uh, so good. It's so good. This was such a helpful, I think this is a, such a helpful conversation, not only about the the branding, the, the experiential. <laughs> I think what you were saying, just the idea of the ex- thinking about the experiential side of what the whole service is trying to accomplish, but also the sound stuff. I really appreciate the time, Paul. Yeah, this was great. You. And um, hopefully it won't be sound guy versus pastor, <laughs> but um, but I'm sure that that's an age, that's a Age-old problem, age-old issue. We, we uh, attract a certain level of people. I'm sure it'll uh, be an issue forever. <laughs> so good. Well, thanks so much for making time and being on the podcast. Thanks. Hey, hope you enjoyed that conversation with Paul as much as I did. Um, hope it's helpful as you think about your craft of teaching as well as the overall experience of a Sunday morning at your church. If you'd like to see more of what Paul and his team do there is a link on the website to 454 Creative, and uh, take a look in the show notes for that. Also, there are some links to some gear. The Countryman E6 headset microphone is not inexpensive, it turns out, as I'm browsing Amazon, Um, but there is a link to that, that, um, as well as the DPA headset mic, which is even more expensive. But these are the industry standards, and um, might be helpful for your sound setup in the room that you're in. Also, there's a link to the Shure SM58 handheld mic, which is what we're recording on, and these are also kind of industry standards for stage mics. Also, the AKG D5 mic that was referenced, there's a link in there for that. Also, if you're thinking about doing some systems integration into your room, your church, uh, Paul Offair recommended Paul Dexter Creative, which is a local company in Southern California in Newport Beach for systems integration. Um, Also, for some online stuff, if you're looking for just some resources, some training, some YouTube videos, tips and tricks, the Yamaha House of Worship website, there is a link in the show notes for that. Looks like there's a lot of great stuff in there if you just have some time to um, do some self-teaching. There's also a couple links to a couple books that Paul recommended off-air. The Yamaha Sound Reinforcement Handbook, which sounds like a really fun book, and the Yamaha Guide to Sound Systems for Worship. So there you go. That's some excitement to uh, get. But again, these are all things that are going to be helpful in the long run. If those don't light your candle, then you can look at the um, Nick Burns SNL skits, which I have a link to on the show notes, as well as the Babylon Bee and some satire about sound tech stereotypes. Anyhow, hope you enjoyed this special episode of Pastor versus Sound Guy. Do us a favor, if you liked it, 
share it. Share it on your social media platforms. We are an independent podcast. We're not part of a network. And so this is all word of mouth. Everything that um, every person who hears about this podcast is all about word of mouth. And the good news is we are probably going to hit 2,500 downloads at the end of this month. And so thank you all for sharing. And it also means that there's something good going on here and we want to keep it going on. So we will catch you on the next episode of the Teaching Pastor Podcast. Fades away. I want to hear the good Lord say, well.